Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Christopher McCurdy, who is a professor of medicinal chemistry at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. And he also served as an NIH postdoctoral fellow in opioid biochemistry, which gives him particular expertise to expand on the topic of kratom or kratom as uh, he will go into more details. But this is such a big issue because you may not be aware of this, but the number one cause of death in the United States and people under 50 is from opioid addiction. So this is a big deal. And I'm so glad that we have Dr. McCurdy on to help us give us some practical alternatives. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. McCullough. It's great to be here. Okay. And I know one of your passions is to educate the people about practical alternatives for this opioid addiction. So hopefully this platform will educate hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people about this option. So first, why don't you explain what Kratom or Kratom is and what the difference is in the pronunciation? So uh, because there's like, it's there's two different correct ways to pronounce it. Sure. I'll, I'll start off with the pronunciation because there are um, actually more than a couple of ways to pronounce it. It just depends on who you talk to. If you're talking to someone in Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia or in Southeast Asia where it's commonly used, uh, you'll hear it called uh, kratom or ketum or uh, kratom. And so we we like to pronounce it as, as kratom, which is pretty close to how uh, the Malaysians or the Thai, depending on who you speak to, would recognize uh, pretty much what you're speaking about. But but I don't think there's really a, a wrong way to pronounce it. It's kind of like tomatoes or tomatoes, uh, kratom, kratom, uh, either way works. <laughs> okay, great. So what what exactly is kratom? So it's, it's a plant. It's actually a tree. It's a tree that grows natively in the peninsula of Thailand and Malaysia. So peninsular part of Malaysia where it borders Thailand is where it's natively found. It does grow all over Southeast Asia um, in tropical areas. It's interesting because it's a tree, but it's from the coffee family. So it actually resides in the coffee family um, and its, its family name is Rubiaceae, which is exactly what the coffee plant is in. Although uh, obviously Kratom or Mitragyna speciosa doesn't produce um, caffeine that we would think of or the coffee beans. It produces some very different chemistries, which is what we're going to talk about uh, hopefully today. But it's been a traditional medicine that's been used in Thailand and Malaysia for uh, centuries uh, to improve the, the um, energy and the worker um, capability of the manual laborers, the outdoor laborers in, in that area that are working in fields, working in harsh heat and humidity conditions uh, day in and day out, and this helps give them more energy. But it's also used traditionally as a substitute for uh, opium. So a lot of opium smokers that would run out of their opium would, would uh, in turn utilize uh, kratom preparations uh, to sort of tide them over until they could get their opium. Um, but they also found that it was a very good way to wean themselves off of opium or, or wean other family members or friends from opium. And so they would, they would use this brood as a tea uh, where they would pluck the leaves fresh in the morning, um, brew a tea, and then they would drink that tea uh, throughout the day, either two or three times a day. Um, and it would be able to at least tide them over to 
uh, opium again or uh, really get them off of opium altogether um, and then they would move on to this and so then that brings about a lot of questions scientifically as to why does that work one and two uh, is it habit forming and, and habituating itself okay so thank you for that explanation and you're uh, actually professor professor of medicinal chemistry that's right and You've been studying this for close to 15 years, as I understand it. And That's correct. Fair to characterize you as one of the leading experts in the United States, if not the world, in this area. I I would say that's probably fair. Um, okay. I don't I don't like to toot my own horn, but I know that uh, there haven't been too many researchers uh, on the front end of this for as long as we have, at least it, for sure, in the United States. Um, there have been a group in Japan that has been working on this uh, prior to us starting in on it, um, but but certainly we've we've been out uh, long before even the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, really knew what it was. So, okay, well, that and I think perhaps part of the reason for that is the and maybe we can delve into this initially uh, before we get into some of the therapeutic benefits. Um, would be the inability to patent this because it's been a plant around for many years, although they've just re recently patented some of the um, derivatives of cannabis. I, I know a drug. Correct. Is, so I'm not sure how that differs from Kratom, but uh, maybe you can delve into it and discuss the and, and enlighten us on one of the reasons that there's not a lot of research in this area and exploration to by companies to bring it forth to the market sure so you can you can certainly patent a molecule or a process to obtain a molecule if you're going to synthesize thing, uh, or if you're going to create a new chemical entity which wouldn't be the natural product so it could be a derivative of one of the natural products and certainly that would be uh, patentable but uh, natural products themselves um, are not patentable any longer. It used to be in the past, um, but that that has been controlled uh, because natural products, uh, according to the courts, belong to nature, um, and they're not ours to profit from or, or really benefit from uh, financially. Now, health-wise, that's a different story, of course, uh, but certainly the the patentability of, of the plant material um, or any molecule isolated from the plant material is not possible. Um, and especially if you're looking at it for the types of uses. Um, so not just the material itself, but also the uses. So we couldn't just say we're going to patent the use of, of Kratom for opioid withdrawal or pain treatment or um, antidepressive treatment. Uh, all of those types of therapeutic potentials are even covered because of the historical use of it. Uh, so there's really not much room there. Now, if you were to produce uh, any of the molecules through a patentable process, like a total synthesis or a um, enzymatic or biochemical synthesis, um, then that could be a product that could be patented, that process could be patented, and then that that could move forward into commercialization. But um, simply just getting the plant material itself as it's available today in the marketplace uh, and making an extract or doing something like that does not uh, lend itself to a patentable standpoint. 
Well, thank you for explaining that. And the, and the reason I wanted to explore that is because this is such a significant issue, as I mentioned earlier, with the number one, the leading cause of death in adults in the United States below 50 is opioid uh, uh, yeah. overdose. Overdose. So, it, you so know, why don't you address that and how Kratom can can have a very significant role in this tragedy? I mean, we got more people dying every year than died in the Vietnam War. Yeah. From, from it's it's sad i mean just a few months ago we were talking about 91 persons per day dying from opiate overdose in the united states uh that number the most recent number now that's come out is about 115 116 people a day now uh dying from opiate overdose um and, 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 excuse me just interrupt for a moment and it is the reason why the uh, the average life expectancy in the united states is decreasing, decreasing. because of this Yes. Yes. And it's, it's sad. It's, it's surpassed uh, car accidents and, and other uh, forms of death. Um, and, and like you said, it's one of the leading causes, if not the leading cause uh, of death in the United States. Um, it's a, it's a scary fact. Uh, this plant I believe has real potential to help um, curb this. It, it may not be the single solution to the crisis, but it certainly could help. Um, and, and we could talk about the, the therapeutic aspects of the plant in that regard. We've been doing a lot of work looking at how it affects opiate overdose and opiate um, addiction. Uh, but, but I think the, the bigger question here is, is making sure that we can have a product that can be in the marketplace that consumers can be confident and safe uh, with and, and feel like this is something they can really use and trust. And that's, that's been an issue lately, especially with um, some of the recalls that have been uh, instituted most recently because of salmonella, salmonella um, uh, contamination. Okay, so before we get into some of the strategies that one can employ to avail himself of this, this resource, uh, perhaps we you can describe how it impacts uh, opioid detox or withdrawal and how it can mediate some of those symptoms and go to the pharmacology and the physiology because you're an expert in that area. Sure, sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, in, in fact, it's really fascinating. So the plant has a number of alkaloids or what we would call nitrogen containing compounds. Um, alkaloids are also what we would call uh, morphine. Morphine's an alkaloid. It's an alkaloid of the, of the poppy plant. Uh, here in the kratom plant, we have what are called coenanthine alkaloids, or um, those are the more specific descriptions of uh, compounds like mitragynin. Mitragynin, which is, or mitragynine as it's sometimes called, uh, is the largest occurring alkaloid, the most abundant alkaloid in the plant, uh, and thought to be responsible for most of its actions. When you see a compound in a high quantity um, in a plant, you usually correlate that to causing the, the behavior or the pharmacological effects. Um, there are many other alkaloids in the plant, um, and many of those compounds working together may cause beneficial effects and synergy from the plant uh, material itself. When you isolate out and look at just one compound or one of those alkaloids uh, alone and look at its pharmacology, um, some of them are really fascinating. Mitragynin in particular is a very fascinating molecule um, in that 
it does have opioid activity. And so it, it was recently called out as opioid and many of the alkaloids were called out as opioids um, by the FDA commissioner. And that's true. And a lot of people were upset about that at first, uh, but I think they need to understand that an opioid is any molecule that can interact with opioid receptors, uh, or those proteins in, in the body. Um, opiates, on the other hand, are uh, derived from the opium poppy. So those would constitute things like morphine or oxycodone or oxymorphone. Um, uh, those types of, of drugs are referred to as opiates, but an opioid is really a generic term. So even our endogenous endorphins um, and bind, those are called opioids, uh, not opiates. So that's the one thing that has to be there. Um, and for sure, mitragynin is, is an opioid. We've, we've known that for a long, long time. Uh, actually, I was kind of surprised when the FDA came out like that was big news because that's been uh, reported in the literature for some time that these compounds and many of the uh, compounds, the alkaloids in the plant interact with opioid receptors. Um, but what was surprising to me was why was this molecule so different uh, than other opioid molecules? And so we initially sent out purified alkaloid of mitragynin uh, for a screen across a whole panel of central nervous system drug targets. Um, so other receptors and proteins. And what we found was a really remarkable profile of this molecule. Um, for example, morphine, if you send it out and you look at it over various um, proteins in the brain, it really is pretty selective for opioid receptors. Um, mitragynin binds with opioid receptors, so we weren't surprised to see that come back on the screen, uh, but it also interacts with serotonin, a couple of different serotonin receptors, uh, dopamine receptors, uh, adenosine receptors. Adenosine receptors are actually the target for caffeine, so, you know, it kind of maybe explains why some of these alkaloids in the plant might cause this uh, excitation or, or stimulant-like effect. Uh, and then it also interacted with adrenergic, alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. And alpha-2 adrenergic receptors are um, many times used in opioid withdrawal uh, agents that activate uh, alpha-2 receptors like clonidine um, are used in opioid withdrawal treatment to stop a lot of the withdrawal symptoms of shaking and sweating, um, heart racing, and this type of, of effect. And so, in, in all honesty, when I, came, when I got the report back from the, the uh, company that screened the molecules, I thought, wow, we just found nature's uh, sort of answer to opiate addiction because here it was interacting with many of the same targets that we would target pharmacologically on an individual basis uh, to, to get many of the same pharmacological effects out of it. And so then we, we went on to pursue much more detailed pharmacology studies, um, looking at what is it doing in the animals that, that we can uh, habituate or make the animals addicted to morphine and then see how the animals behave when we start to take away their morphine and turn them over to uh, accessing mitragynin. And so what we saw was really remarkable. And we compared mitragynin to uh, methadone and buprenorphine, which are the two marketed uh, drugs to treat opioid um, addiction and opioid withdrawal. And what we found was a much cleaner profile. It wasn't incredibly superior to uh, buprenorphine or, or methadone in the withdrawal treatments, but uh, it was 
it seemed to be a little more milder. Um, it is uh, activating opioid receptors, and so does methadone, and so does um, uh, buprenorphine. But buprenorphine and methadone seem to be full agonists or activators of opioid receptors, whereas mitragynin we think is actually a partial agonist or somewhat activator. Uh, I like to explain this basically as if you're going to turn a faucet on on your sink, a full agonist or a full activator would be when you turn that faucet all the way on full blast uh, versus a partial activator, which would just turn that faucet on a little bit. You don't want as much pressure or as much output from that, that system. And so that's kind of what uh, I compare those two, and that's what mitragynin looks like. It looks like a partial agonist at opioid receptors, so it doesn't activate them as intensely as others, uh, but also it activates a different signaling pathway once the receptor is is turned on, so to speak. Then we used to think that only that was the event that happened. Uh, some molecule interacted with a receptor, the receptor turned on and you got an output. Uh, now we understand that there's several signaling pathways that can be activated when that receptor is turned on. So it can be thought of as different inputs into a television or, or something like that where the system's on, uh, but hey, we're getting an input from a Blu-ray player or we're getting input from a satellite, um, just different ways of signaling. And, and mitragynin seems to signal in a way that seems to not cause respiratory depression, uh, at least to this extent that uh, the other traditional opiate drugs do, like morphine, uh, heroin, and so on. And that's the reason for the ultimate cause of death in most of these opiate overdoses is that the, the, the drug itself, one of its characteristics is it suppresses the brainstem and you just lose the impulse to, to signal to breathe. That's absolutely right. You, the respiratory depression or stopping breathing is essentially what is the cause of death from opiate overdose. Um, op opioids are pretty safe to your body's organs, mm -hmm. uh, except for the fact that they, they are CNS depressants and they will shut everything off. As long um, as it doesn't stop you from breathing, it's okay. It, yeah. And unfortunately that's the, that's the, uh, that's the end point. And if, if it stops you from breathing, you're, you're pretty much done. But uh, I was talking to one of my colleagues, uh, Ed Boyer, who's a MD PhD in, at uh, Harvard. And um, he was, he was fascinating because he told me, you know, if you're going to be addicted to a drug, opioids are probably the one that are the most okay to your body in general. Um, but yeah, you don't want to be addicted to any drug. Uh, if, if, if you, if you, don't have to be. And of course, it's yeah. not a choice. It's something that ends up developing from a disease state. So, yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, this is not something people intent intentionally go for. It's not no. their goal at all, but uh, it is so highly addictive. But it's an interesting observation, and I've known that for a long time too from my pharmacology courses, that it's a very clean drug as long yeah. as it doesn't stop you from breathing. Yeah. So can you, can you expand on the different opioid receptors, the mu, delta, and kappa, and sure. how mitragynin uh, impacts that and its ability to help uh, the withdrawal symptoms or sure. as, a, so, as a therapeutic agent for you know, getting people off opioids. So yeah, there's, there's three, what we think of as three traditional opioid receptors. Those were actually identified and proven to exist in the nineties when the human genome project and we could clone and 
um, really molecular biology moved forward to the point where we could really understand these things. Um, but we do have three receptors. So there's a mu receptor, a mu opioid receptor, a delta opioid receptor, and a kappa opioid receptor, as you referred to. Uh, mu was actually named for um, its ability to interact with morphine and Morpheus. Uh, morphine was named for Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams. Um, and so mu was designated as the Greek letter uh, to interact with morphine. And so that receptor is really responsible for the um, euphoric effects that come with opioids. It's also uh, very responsible for the respiratory depressive effects uh, that are associated with opioids. Um, all of the opioid receptors, I should back up before we talk uh, specific about them, all of them are linked to um, numbing pain or dulling pain, uh, what we call analgesic uh, receptors. And so they're able to block uh, pain signal transmissions or slow pain signal transmissions down uh, at the spinal cord level so that the brain doesn't uh, feel or process the pain as much. So all of them are good in terms of trying to target as a pain um, reliever pathway. And of course, it's the best pain reliever pathway we, we've been able to identify uh, up to this point. And really, mu is the focus. The mu opioid receptor is the focus of uh, a lot of those activities. And the delta receptor for a long time was thought to be uh, also a great target for uh, selective analgesics. In fact, there was a whole company called Delta Pharmaceuticals that started out uh, really thinking they could produce a, a painkiller that had no addictive liabilities to it. Uh, and the Delta receptor looked very promising. Um, in fact, it doesn't seem to have uh, the, the uh, addictive capabilities associated with it, uh, or at least not as strongly as the mu receptor does. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the delta receptor seems to be linked to convulsions as uh, one of the outcomes. And so many of the drugs that were being tested and studied and trying to develop as delta selective opioid uh, receptor ligands were were halted due to uh, seizures in, in many of the animals that, that they couldn't resolve. Uh, so Delta kind of was abandoned uh, for a while, but uh, we also know that um, mitragyne in the, in the kratom plant, um, many of these compounds don't seem to interact with Delta receptors, or at least we can't measure them interacting with Delta receptors with our current technology. Um, when we move on to the kappa opioid receptor, the kappa opioid receptor seems to be sort of the yin and the yang to the mu receptor in that instead of causing euphoria, it seems to cause dysphoria or a bad feeling uh, or aversive um, type feelings. And uh, again, very good target for killing pain. And, and I think what's interesting is um, they thought that they had discovered uh, in the in the 70s and 80s, they thought they had discovered a selective kappa opioid non-addictive painkiller that was just as potent as morphine or if not more potent. Um, and they moved into human clinical trials and the people that took uh, the drug said, I don't know what that was, but don't ever give it to me again <laughs> uh, because they felt so awful and bad. They dropped out of the trials even after a single dose. So uh, there is this aversive effect that comes with a kappa um, 
activation of the kappa opioid receptor. And so there's sort of this whole balance. There's, there's uh, analgesia associated with all three receptors. One has a really euphoric feeling. That's the mu. Uh, delta, we're not really sure, um, and, and probably the, the least understood of the three. Uh, but again, good analgesic target. And then the kappa, also an analgesic target, but seems to cause that reversed uh, instead of euphoria, dysphoric behavior. And is kratom um, an agonist or partial agonist for all of those receptors? So we think it's a it's a partial agonist for all of the receptors. Um, it seems to be very weak at um, delta and kappa. What's interesting is you can't really, as I, as I said, you can't really measure interaction with mm -hmm. the delta receptor, but in animal studies, you can actually block some of the effects of uh, mitragynin or kratom with delta receptor selective antagonists or blockers for the delta receptor. So delta system seems to be involved somehow. We just don't really know all the pieces of the puzzle yet to figure that out. Okay. And is it <clears throat> activation of the mu opioid receptors that likely contributes to the significant addictive potential of opiates? And does kratom have a significant stimulus so that, or which kratom's a stimulus to this relative to the addictive potential. Right. So um, it, it's, it's interesting. We have a paper that's under review right now in addiction biology um, with a colleague of mine, uh, <clears throat> Scott Hemby from uh, High Point University in North Carolina. And Scott uh, and I got together and started thinking that we can look at what is the actual abuse potential of mitragynin. Uh, so we, we trained uh, or he trained uh, rats to uh, self-administer morphine. So they were able to learn to press a lever and they would get injections of morphine. And if they press the lever a number of times, they would get an injection. Um, and so we were able to look at that. Once you train those animals, you can then substitute that morphine for some other drug and see if they think it's like morphine, right? Mm -hmm. So we substituted mitragynin and they stopped self-administering. So it seemed like, well, this is interesting. Maybe it doesn't activate the mu opioid receptor in an addictive manner or in a manner that would produce addiction. Uh, of course, we did it at only one dose and we did it at only a, um, uh, a limited fashion at the moment because we're hoping to get some grant funding to really pursue this. Um, but the, the, the fact of the matter is m morphine um, many drugs will substitute for morphine. Many other compounds like oxycodone or oxymorphone that we know are used um, clinically, but mitragynin did not substitute. Uh, and what was even more interesting is we couldn't train over several doses. We couldn't train the animals to self-administer mitragynin to themselves. So this was a completely... Um, well, for us, it was a very strong indicator that mitragynin doesn't have an abuse potential. In fact, that's kind of the sort of story of our paper. Now, that's not the whole story of the plant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there are other molecules in the plant, um, and mitragynin being the major one. And of course, like I said, it doesn't seem to activate the opioid receptors as fully as other things. Um, but there is another compound, the 7-hydroxymitragynin, which is a oxidative byproduct, we think, from the drying of the leaves. Um, we've actually been doing a lot of studies in the last month or two 
uh, on fresh extracts from Malaysia. And we're not seeing 7-hydroxy present mm. in the fresh extracts. Um, we've, we've also been trying to figure out how, how does that process take place. And it, it could be various things. I mean, it could be that it is an oxidative byproduct, or it could be that it's actually because most of the material that's coming into the United States is actually coming from Indonesia, which is a different growing region, um, different climate to some extent as for sure different microclimates. Um, there could be different bugs present. There could be different soils, of course, many different variables that we don't understand yet either. But the 7-hydroxymetrogynin, which is known to be in very small amounts if it exists at all, um, is a full opioid agonist and is a very potent opioid agonist and is a very fast-acting opioid full agonist from what we can see. And that molecule does substitute directly for morphine and it also can be habit forming. Um, I think what's even more interesting about this recent study that we did, we, we um, treated animals with mitragynin that were already addicted to morphine and then re-exposed them to morphine uh, self-administration so they could then go ahead and work again for morphine uh, and it decreased their intake of morphine. So this was pretty exciting because it also shows that there's some maybe therapeutic potential uh, in reducing opioid intake. Um, and that begs the question about if there is 7-hydroxy present in a very small amount and you have maybe 20 times or more of mitragynin relative to the 7-hydroxy, is that actually counteracting the effect of the 7-hydroxy compound so it's not as bad? It's, it's really hard to say at this point because we don't have all the science done. We've got lots of, lots of you know, additional studies planned and, and hope that we can figure out uh, what's going on there. But our take home is that um, Kratom as a whole is pretty much on the addictive level uh, of coffee. It's really not that harsh of an addictive uh, plant. But it depends, it's starting to look like it may depend on what level of this 7-hydroxymitragynin is present uh, in, in the material or in the product that, that's utilized. So it brings up an interesting question, because, and it's a very intriguing observation that you've made with the 7-hydroxymitragynin. But it seems to be present in the plant as a result of the oxidative stresses from drying the leaves. So would would suggest that taking the fresh plant and making the tea or the extract would almost eliminate this metabolite or this oxidative metabolite and essentially eliminate the addictive potential. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, that's our hypothesis right now. I think it's fair to say that. Uh, at this point. And um, we, we've been fortunate to really gain some uh, good collaborations with the University of Science in Malaysia, uh, where they have actual, uh, I would say, cultivars of Mitragana speciosa trees uh, that they can use and study as well. And so um, we've been really excited because we're getting fresh extract material from them. Uh, we're also looking at some of the traditional preparations that are made by traditional uh, users of this in Malaysia, where they're going out to their own tree in their own backyard, picking the leaves fresh, 
uh, brewing the tea in the morning, and then we're getting samples of some of that to to analyze and test. Um, but so far, everything that we've looked at with fresh material, and we've looked at several locations, several different farms around Malaysia uh, that, that we've been able to get access to, we don't see the 7-hydroxy there, which then leads me to believe that there's only two things that can be going on. One is it is this oxidative um, process that's causing uh, either drying out of the leaves or the sun or the heat, excuse me, uh, any of those things that could be could be creating that. Um, the other is the environmental factors. And so it could be an environmental pressure factor uh, that you see in Indonesia that you don't see in Malaysia. Uh, and that could be a number of things, bugs, soil type, m many, many factors could be involved there. But um, yeah, it's, I think if, if we can get fresh materials, particularly that from uh, those places that we've tested in Malaysia, you can eliminate that semi-hydroxy and then potentially eliminate uh, the abuse liability. And that's one thing that we've been very interested in from the start because I had had this hypothesis based on the three-dimensional structure differences between mitragonin and 7-hydroxymitragonin. If we were to model those structures, 7-hydroxymitragonin um, looks much more like morphine structure uh, when it's in three dimensions. Um, and that's just placing several elements that we know are important for recognition of a molecule at an opioid receptor in that same alignment um, versus mitragynin that looks very different uh, from a morphine structure in three dimensions. And so uh, I had long hypothesized that the 7-hydroxy was going to be a problem as we moved forward. And as we've seen the research uh, come forward, we've, we've started to really realize that is uh, the case. The, the exciting part of it, though, is yes, 7-hydroxy is potent. It's probably very uh, addictive molecule, but it also seems to be a safer molecule than the traditional opioids uh, like morphine and the derivatives of morphine in that it doesn't seem to cause the respiratory depression. So, again, lots of things to deal with here, lots of questions to still answer. Okay, and then let's, we really sort of skipped over the use of kratom uh, as a treatment modality for opioid addiction sure. uh, and relief of the opioid, opioid withdrawals, as I understand from watching a previous interview with you, that uh, the only thing that it doesn't do, at least the whole plant extract, is the shaking or wet shaking dog yeah, syndrome. Yeah, wet, wet dog shaking. Yeah. So we, we measure uh, opioid withdrawal in... Um, in a variety of fashions, but what you really have to look for are behaviors um, that wouldn't be exhibited in a normal, healthy animal. Uh, so what we look at are actually uh, one, which is just locomotor activity, the way that the animal moves around, uh, freely moves around. Um, two is uh, paw tremors. And so just if they're shaking their paws, a normal uh, mouse wouldn't do that. We look at jumping behavior and really what we're looking for is an increase in jumping behavior because uh, mice, just normal mice will jump uh, any, anywhere from one to two times in about a 30 minute period if you're observing them. Uh, the other thing that is totally not um, usual for a mouse is to do a wet dog shake or what we characterize as a wet dog shake. And that's literally just like what it sounds is from the head to the tail, they will, they will stop 
and uh, shake from the head to the tail. We think that's a serotonergic effect. Uh, so related to the serotonin receptor systems, um, but it's something that we see. So if we if we give an animal uh, one last thing, teeth chattering is another thing that we can uh, measure. We can hear these um, mice and their teeth chattering, which they normally don't do either, even if they're cold, <laughs> unlike humans. Um, but the so those different measurements we can look at. We also look at body weight. Um, all of those effects were eliminated when you compared to just uh, precipitated withdrawal. So what we did was we habituated mice to morphine over five days with escalating doses of morphine on each day. So they got morphine doses twice a day for five days in a row. They started out with a low dose and every day the dose doubled. Um, and then on the final day, the sixth day, receive a dose in the morning and then about 15 to 30 minutes later they receive a, a dose of of naloxone which is the reversal narcan the reversal agent of opioid overdose or opioid treatments and what that does is it knocks all the opioid agonists off of the opioid receptors and sort of shuts off that faucet from running um and and that knock off all the receptors and you uh delta and kappa it, it does. It's more selective for mu, but it, it's not a, a mu selective okay. uh, agent. So it does work on all three. We call it kind of a pan opioid antagonist, but it, but it does have more preference for the mu opioid receptor. And most of our agents that we're talking about are interacting really at, at that receptor um, that we'd be worried about someone overdosing on anyway. Uh, but, but to, to just go on further, the, the withdrawal symptoms, see, we can see all of those things. If you just precipitate withdrawal in a mouse, you'll see that teeth chattering, uh, paw shaking, wet dog shakes, all these uh, different behaviors I just mentioned. Um, and, and that's our baseline. That's what we measure. And then we're looking at drugs like buprenorphine or methadone, or in this case, kratom, to see how it can lessen those effects over time. And so, as I mentioned before, we compared buprenorphine and methadone. Uh, it did better in, than both of those in all the measures, but it wasn't um, incredibly, incredibly superior, but it seems to be safer. Uh, methadone has been known to cause a lot of overdose deaths because of its uh, very narrow therapeutic window and very long, long half-life. So it stays in the body for a very long time. Uh, it takes a long time to activate as well. Um, but when we gave kratom tea, so we would brew kratom tea just like uh, someone would uh, Asia, and then we take that kratom tea, we lyophilize it or freeze dry it, and then we analyze that through uh, our colleague Dr. Bonnie Avery, who's our analytical guru uh, and chemistry guru on that side, and she can tell us what the content of the alkaloids are in that particular amount, and so we can normalize the doses. Uh, for the animals based on that. So we give them um, doses of the lyophilized tea by mouth, uh, and then we precipitate the withdrawal uh, again five days later. So we'll do five days on morphine, five days on, on the kratom, uh, where they were getting kratom twice a day, and then we precipitated again on the last day of that. But we also did animals that had never had morphine. We just exposed them to kratom for five days twice a day and then we precipitated withdrawal in those animals with naloxone and in both cases whether they were exposed to morphine 
switched over to Kratom or they were just Kratom by itself, they all experienced only this wet dog shake as a side effect. Uh, so we went back to see if we could even eliminate that. And interestingly enough, just anecdotally hearing human reports of um, getting off of Kratom, you hear about runny noses um, or, or sometimes a little bit of irritability or shakiness or just uh, a malaise feeling, a down feeling uh, overall. And, and a lot of that could be attributed to serotonin-like uh, system activation, which would somewhat be analogous to this wet dog shake uh, in in the in the mice. Now I can't say that definitively; it's the same thing, but we can draw sort of that sort of um, conclusion or speculation that they're they're somewhat related. Um, and and so we were interested to see if we could eliminate all side effects altogether. Uh, so we went in and we performed uh, some manipulation on the lyophilized tea to remove uh, certain alkaloids and certain chemicals. And what we found was um, we could eliminate all the side effects uh, with a tea preparation that's been modified. And so that, in reality, that would be a patentable uh, system mm -hmm. because we could generate a, uh, a therapeutic, potentially therapeutic option that has um, been manipulated, not not GMO or anything like that. We've mm -hmm. essentially gone through and decaffeinated it like you would decaffeinate coffee, uh, but we've removed more than just one thing uh, from that plant mixture and gone back in and seen that it works with no side effects on withdrawal. Um, and that's very similar to just pure mitragynin itself. So if you take mitragynin out uh, and purify it, uh, and then do the same type of paradigm I'm talking about where we look at the, will the animals have a withdrawal symptom from Mitragan and they, they do not. So it's, it's a very, uh, I think, very fascinating, promising molecule. Uh, I think the molecule itself uh, would, would rival methadone or buprenorphine uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, but the problem is you, we, we go back to what we started out talking about, patentability and being able to get um, uh, some sort of, some sort of um, income revenue back to pay back all the investment made in bringing something like that to the market. But it sounds like it's possible. I mean, you've got a patentable It's possible. Uh, and uh, and there's certainly a need for it. Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. Hopefully that there's no uh, interest in any uh, drug developer to do this, though. Um, not not that we've seen. And, and the reason is, and then let me let me be clear. Um, they are interested in the modified formulation. The the problem that we're facing right now, which we're hopefully uh, going to be able to overcome soon, is verifying our biomass source. So verifying mm. where our plant material is coming from, and if that plant material would live up to the standards that the FDA would require in order to ensure public safety. So can we can we um, have a legitimate verified source that we can trust that we know hasn't been treated with uh, pesticides that could be dangerous to humans, hasn't been treated with heavy metals containing waters or, or, or fertilizers. Um, you know, basically if it, if it's a clean, good product that we can get on a regular basis um, 
and be able to standardize. That would be the next thing because you don't want to have the product being really good one day and not so good the other day because the alkaloid content has changed uh, from one batch to the other. So you have to have batch to batch consistency and you have to have this sort of provenness in biomass. Now that's existing in our current culture. I mean, every day uh, people that have smoked Marlboro cigarettes will go buy a pack of Marlboro and it tastes exactly as it did 20 years ago. Um, and, and they'll stick to that brand loyalty. And that's because they have figured out a great way to blend these products so that there's a consistent product uh, day in and day out. Same thing with teas, same thing with coffees uh, that we, that we get, or we, we really become attached to um, in that flavor profile um, that I think it's very possible to do if we kind of learn from those industries uh, moving forward. Well, part of it is that they're growing the product domestically. So that's one of my burning questions is this plant is indigenous to Southwest Asia and Indonesia. And can it be grown in the USA? Can it be grown in Florida? It would seem like you should be able to. And then if you can do that, you should be able to provide a very consistent raw material, which yeah. would uh, satisfy the requirements. So we actually have um, we actually have been contacted by some individuals that are growing uh, kratom trees in South Florida. Uh, we, it, it appears that they're doing very well and that they can survive there. Interesting, I have a student here right now from Malaysia um, that says, you know, Gainesville is probably too cold uh, mm -hmm. to grow the tree. But as you move down towards Miami uh, and, and really the tip of Florida, it's probably good enough zone and climate uh, to be able to grow the tree. And I have seen pictures from two different um, where uh, individuals are growing trees and some of them even have trees that I would say are, oh, maybe 15 to 20 feet tall um, mm -hmm. with a good age to them. So it looks like they can survive in, in Florida's climate. That's great. Um, we're, also, we're also working with horticulturists at the University of Florida uh, to try to understand what conditions the plants need to thrive in the United States, uh, particularly, of course, in Florida. Um, but can they be grown in a greenhouse? Um, what what um, uh, types of, of nutrients do they need? How well are they going to survive? Uh, one thing we know in Florida is that um, the orange crop uh, is, is in a little bit of danger due to greening. Um, and maybe a little bit is an understatement, uh, but <laughs> but uh, many orange growers are looking for alternative uh, crops. One of them happens to be cannabis uh, in the state, and it's really for hemp, not for the medical marijuana, but for the hemp uh, uh, product. Uh, there was actually an article in the Gainesville Sun today about that. Um, and UF's involvement in, in really testing these products to make sure they don't have enough THC in them to be hemp. Uh, so there's some alternative crops in that way. Um, but we've also been approached by some growers, uh, commercial growers, for, for interest in, in um, and what the real feasibility would be to grow uh, Mitragana speciosa or kratom trees. And so I think there's an interest in it, and it may be a groundswelled interest uh, to really see if we can't create a new type of uh, product for these growers to look at. 
that product would ensure us as researchers or, or producers of a pharmaceutical that we would have a good, reliable source that we could control, understand, um, and we could then hopefully blend up and produce a, a really top-notch product that we can do some really controlled clinical trials with um, and then also move that on to, you know, helping people. That's the whole goal here is to move over so we can really get uh, help to a lot of these opiate addicts and, and hopefully get sure. them off. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of people dying every year, hundreds every day. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could briefly discuss the legal status. I know there was an effort, I believe, last year by the DEA to categorize it as a class one controlled substance, and that sure. was overturned, which was unusual for the DEA, but I believe it's legal in all states, so I'm sure you can expand greatly on that. So it's not legal in all states. It's legal in most of the states. There are a few states uh, where it is illegal, including uh, Alabama, um, uh, believe, Louisiana, the, the Illinois has an area that's illegal. Um, in fact, the last time I checked, I think it was six or seven states uh, have laws on the books, including Florida. It is it is um, banned in one county in Florida. Um, uh, you know which county? I I don't want to say for sure. <laughs> I think it's Brevard, but I I, I okay. really don't know or Broward. Um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, in the, in that West Palm Beach area, I believe. Um, but but it's it's fascinating because kratom ended up being a, a product of the wrong place at the wrong time. And what I mean by that is, it was also available in um, gas stations and in head shops the same time that spice uh, and bath salts were available. And so, in a haste to put legislation out banning bath salts and uh, synthetic marijuana spice. I believe those really do need to be in schedule one, especially many of those compounds haven't even been tested in humans until they were into the marketplace to go into humans, let alone even tested in rodents. I mean, they, many of them never saw a, a, a living system until they were putting it out into the marketplace for people. Um, so that's scary, but Kratom was there on the shelves right in line with all of that. And then the next thing there was the five-hour energies and the and the stackers and all the caffeine products that are there. Um, and so Kratom was sort of the oddball out, and it ended up getting lumped into a lot of states' uh, synthetic cannabinoids and basalts bills. Uh, and it's the only natural product that's listed in some of those is, is why it's outlawed in those places. But as far as on the federal level, no, it's completely legal up to this point. The DEA did come out in uh, the fall of 2016 and um, suggest that they were going to put uh, mitragonin, 7 and mitragonin species or kratom into Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, Schedule 1 means absolutely no medical use uh, and means it's a highly addictive substance and um, will essentially halt uh, research uh, on it. Uh, marijuana is in Schedule 1, uh, <laughs> as is LSD, as is many other drugs that are actually starting to be uh, studied for medical potential now. And that, we could do a whole other hour on other psychoactive substances, I'm sure. Um, but uh, 
they essentially wanted to put this into schedule one saying that it has absolutely no medical use, uh, but there's no science out there to back up that rationale. And so um, the DEA was contacted by um, several entities, uh, many researchers, many researchers contacted uh, Congress uh, to get uh, congressional intervention. Um, suffice to say, there was many points of pressure onto the DEA to not uh, make this scheduling uh, official. And so the DEA decided to open up a 30-day comment period uh, to obtain information. And so every one of those scientists and uh, consumers and people that have benefited from it uh, flooded the DEA with messages, and they received over 23,000 um, individual messages at the DEA in that 30-day period to keep this thing out of Schedule 1. Um, and it worked, and, and a very unprecedented, just like you said, you know, this doesn't happen. Um, the DEA decided to with, withdraw its intent to put it into Schedule 1, um, but they have that threat there that at any moment in time they could certainly pull the trigger and make it make it illegal. Uh, we had actually shut down our research while that threat was undergoing because I didn't want to wake up one morning, come into work, and be in violation of federal <laughs> law at the university. So we had – I don't have a Schedule One uh, research license, and so we had packed up all of our materials and sent it to our, our good collaborator, Scott Hemby, at uh, High Point University, who does have a Schedule One license. And Scott held on to the material for us for – uh, a while, and I finally started getting just too antsy, uh, waiting around doing nothing in this in the face of all this uh, crisis. And so he said, "Scott, we need our stuff back so we can get get back to work and get the machines going again." And uh, and that's exactly what we've done. We've we've really cranked up and intensified um, the work to gain more science, get more science out there, and hopefully be able to get some uh, human uh, science really controlled human science uh, performed at some point because everything that's out there in the literature or in stories. And I have emails and emails and emails from people, thousands of emails um, suggesting how helpful Kratom has been to them in their life. Uh, and, and those are all fantastic stories. I love each, every one of them. I read them all. I don't respond to everyone, but I read them all. Um, and, and it's encouraging to me. The, the problem is none of those are scientifically valid in what we would call a science sense because they haven't been done in any controlled trial. We haven't really validated anything. They all just are suggestive or what we call anecdotal evidence that this is working. But heck, when case, you have case reports, yeah. When you have hundreds of years of no safe use of this product in Malaysia and Thailand, and then you have um, an estimated somewhere between four and seven million uh, Americans are using Kratom on a daily basis. And that's based off of internet sales. So Yeah, and perhaps you can uh, touch on the safety of, of Kratom, uh, because I believe there, there's been some deaths associated with it, but they all appear to be... Uh, uh, so with other drugs, people were using with other drugs, and it, but its safety profile seems to be profoundly 
effective. The the safety profile is is remarkable, and yes, there have been some deaths associated uh, with kratom. Most of those have been in combinations with other drugs. There are a couple of um, cases uh, that have reported only finding um, kratom or or mitragyne and alkaloids uh, on board the the tox reports. Um, but that it's almost impossible to understand based on um, we just don't know enough about how it's being metabolized, what's going on. So if somebody has uh, some impaired function, um, they may be uh, on, a, on a high protein diet or they may be um, on some other type of, of diet that uh, you know, they think is healthy, but it unfortunately isn't healthy when taking Kratom. We don't know the answers to all of these questions. There's a lot more work that has to be done. However, I will go back and say that, uh, again, in the indigenous population where this is used in Malaysia and in Thailand, um, there haven't been any reports in the history associated to only uh, Kratom. In fact, it's never been a drug of abuse or a drug that's sought out for pleasure. It's a, it's a societal norm. It's just like coffee is in the United States. I mean, these people live, uh, drink this in the morning before they go to work, they drink it in the mid afternoon um, and then they drink it in the evenings. And um, many of the men will gather, they don't drink alcohol, uh, most of them, but many of the men will gather in the evenings and drink uh, a glass or two of Kratom tea as they socialize. And so it's a, it's a very societal uh, cultural custom that's known there and has been safe for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. In the U.S., it's been fairly safe, um, uh, albeit, you know, any death is is um, a sad, sad event, and, and we don't like to see it. Uh, but we need to understand what's going on and how it's happening. Uh, even in the few cases that have been reported, um, we, we need to understand, is it a combination with antidepressants that's a problem? Is it a combination with other drugs like muscle relaxants that's um, we, we just don't know enough of these answers yet uh, to really tell people how to safely use uh, the product, although millions of consumers are using it and appear to be using it safely. Um, the other issue on safety is uh, it comes back to that thing I talked about earlier in terms of getting a reliable source of the biomass and really understanding where the product's coming from. Um, I've heard rumors that some product uh, has been shipped into the United States under, under the form of kelp. So just as seaweed and it comes in wet and damp. Uh, and that could be some of the problems that we're seeing now with the salmonella outbreak that has been tied back to Kratom. Um, or you know, yeah, there's 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 issues so that the material that's coming into the United States isn't always screened uh, to it's good and safe for the consumer. Um, there are some companies that are screening it for every thing that the FDA would require from a botanical product. And so they're screening for fungus, um, screening for bacteria, screening for mold, screening for pesticides, uh, all those things we talked a little bit about before. Um, but then there are companies that aren't doing that and are just putting products 
products out. And I, I you know, I can't even tell you which products are, are uh, I good know you or can't. not. <laughs> even if you could, there's yeah. no assurance that, that company wouldn't change their process the next day. Absolutely. So, but I'm wondering, you know, especially with millions using it, and the you know, tens of thousands who need it, if otherwise they're going to be dead. If there's any process that you could recommend and strategy that an interested consumer could follow to increase the likelihood that they're getting a reliable, consistent product. Right. I, I wish there was a, um, I just wish there was a way we could do something like a, 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 I envision a product that's available for other things, something called like Kratom safe, right? <laughs> so you, you actually know that what you bought, you could, you could take a capsule and put it into a, a vial of liquid. And if it, if it turned this color, you knew you wouldn't want to, want to drink, uh, eat it. Um, but unfortunately there isn't, there really isn't any way to tell at this point in time, what is and what isn't safe. Um, one thing that we have high hopes for, uh, I, I won't say this, so this will happen. Um, but we'd really like to see the United States pharmacopoeia, uh, develop a monograph, uh, for Mitragyna speciosa, which would be a standardization, uh, product. And then if you could earn a product that could get the USP seal, which we see on many vitamin products. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, USP is developing, I'm a member of the as well, uh, voting member. And, uh, they actually are developing a monograph on cannabis, uh, cannabis right now. So it, it, it can be done. Um, and I really would like to see this developed and that would again, give, give uh, all the problem. Yeah, it would solve the problem and give the customer, you know, consumer assurance that that they're getting a quality material. Uh, there's, yeah, I, I I really wish that we were five or ten years in the future where we had all these growing conditions figured out in Florida and we, yeah, <laughs> we had all a right. Well, we could at trust. least we can get anticipate have some something to anticipate. But getting into specifics now, there's three different strains or a variety of different strains of, uh, of Mitragonum or Kratom. And I'm wondering uh, if you could briefly touch on that. And then I want to go about preparation to oral versus different types of extracts. Sure. Sure. So the, um, just real quick, the different products, there's a red vein, a white vein, a green vein, and then there's one called um, Ma Dong or, or um, Meng Da. Um, those are all different. The green and white vein are actually considered the same. Uh, it just depends on when the plant is harvested as to if the vein is green or white. Um, and then the red vein is different. Um, Many claim that the red vein is more potent, has more of the alkaloids in it. Uh, but what we've been learning, and we've harvested all of these different products from these different locations in Malaysia, is it's not so much about the strain itself. It's about where the product is grown <laughs> and, okay. and what the potency is in there. Um, we've analyzed many products that are available in the marketplace through um, – uh, ultra high performance liquidography and, and mass spectrometry. And what we've learned from that is um, sometimes the ones that people think the red vein being the strongest actually have the lowest content of material in them compared to the other products that are actually cheaper. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, it's one of these things where there's no real labeling laws. There's no consistency. There's no idea. Um, You could buy the red, the red vein one day, 
um, buy it the next week and it's less potent, go back in the next week and it's the potency's back up and just don't really know uh, where these things are. But from what we've seen in the, in the natural environments, the difference is really going to be uh, where these microclimates are producing uh, the materials. And if we, if we get back to the uh, Mangda strain, uh, which is touted as being one of the sort of high-end and superior strains, that actually comes from a tall-shaped leaf. So they call these toothed leaves. Um, they actually have uh, – I wouldn't go as far as to say they look like oak leaves, but they they definitely, instead of a nice smooth leaf, what you would see on the Mitragana leaf, um, you see it's smooth at the bottom and then – uh, real jagged edges up to a point. Um, and again, we haven't seen a huge difference in any of these supposed uh, strains. And the, a lot of it comes down to marketing um, mm -hmm. and what, you know, what can play to <laughs> the consumer environment. All right. Well, thank you for expanding on that. And sure. the uh, important question is to do the traditionally Kratom has been used as a water extract in the tea. That's from right. the leaves. And I'm wondering if you've looked at, um, I, I don't know if Kratom grows into flowers or berries or other mm -hmm. materials of the plant or even the inner bark. And if you've looked at those extracts and or or even looked at ethanol extracts where you're, you're getting different alkaloids out. Yeah, so we've, we've actually, we did a systematic um, study with different solvents. So we went from, we've done ethanol, uh, methanol, acetone, um, there's a handful of, of different solvents that we've looked at in terms of extracting and trying to maximize what we're pulling out of the plant material because the aqueous extract, the water extract, is only going to pull out a certain amount of material. Uh, methanol is usually one of the greatest ones to pull out just about everything from the plant. It's sort of the universal solvent um, and pulls many of the materials out. Uh, we've even studied those extracts in the animals. And so we've looked at differences between uh, being able to pull out all the materials or just the aqueous extract or whatnot. Uh, and there's, there is differences. Um, there's definitely differences if you purify a molecule and take it outside of that extract, because it, it, it seems very clear that many of the compounds and the alkaloids within the plant material work somehow in synergy with each other to help either absorb those molecules into the body system or keep certain ones out of the body system. Uh, it's really fascinating how these plants do that and, and help to uh, gain access to the, what, you know, the therapeutic compounds are the ones that uh, can get in for benefit from those plant materials. So we've looked at many different extraction products um, We've also looked at different extracts. So you can get alkaloid-rich extracts uh, if you get rid of many of the other materials from them. Um, but but we do a lot of that just on an everyday basis. And I'm sorry, you said something else other than... Well, I, the, the extracts were the leaves. That's the traditional ones that we're using. Oh, yeah, I wonder right. if you looked at other materials. Oh, the, the bark plant, like and the, the flowers. Or the flowers yes. or the berries that, that makes our fruit, even. I got you. So the, the it does fruit. It the fruit is um, produced in uh, flower uh, flower form, uh, and of course, you, if you search on um, the internet, you can find pictures of this flower. It's a yellow 
uh, pod that eventually when those flowers drop, um, those are where the seeds are. The seeds are very fragile. They are not very viable for a long period of time. Uh, and so it's not something that you can collect seeds and then hope to grow from seed. Um, most of the trees have to be propagated from cuttings. Mm. Excuse me. Okay. So it makes it difficult unless it's in the indigenous mm -hmm. environment sure. where it can naturally grow. Um, but we have looked at flowers. We have looked at bark. We've looked at stems. We've roots. Um, so we've essentially taken the entire tree and ground it up uh, and, and looked at various places. Uh, there are reports from the the uh, users in, in Indonesia that they actually will pick the leaves off the tree. They'll remove the vein completely because they say the vein is too bitter and too strong. Uh, so they'll remove the vein and use only the leaf material. We do know that there's a higher concentration of the alkaloids in the vein than there is in the flesh of the leaf material. Uh, most of the products that we see come into the U.S. are whole leaf just chopped up or ground up. Uh, so they do have the vein. They do have all of that. Uh, one other thing that I, th I find really fascinating is the bark or the, the branches. Um, if people feel like they need a boost, they will put the bark branches into um, their teas as they brew it. Uh, they say it makes it much stronger. Uh, and we, we really haven't found out what that molecule is that's helping to make it stronger yet. Uh, it could just be one of those sort of urban legends or, you know, sure. the wives tale that's been handed down over the years. Um, but, but we haven't seen much of a difference outside of the leaves. Uh, there are different compounds. Of course, there's different compounds that are in higher quantities in the, the, the stems um, in the fruits uh, and we're, we're trying to pursue and see what the pharmacology is that's associated to them. We went for the no pun intended low hanging fruit first, which was the major alkaloid sure. tragonin. So, <laughs> so, and is there a difference for those who purchase it, the millions that are using it, if they swallow it, the ground up leaves versus brewing it as a tea, we absorb similar amounts of the alkaloids. I think you'll probably similar amounts. We haven't looked at, um, specifically, we haven't compared animals with freeze-dried tea and ground-up capsule material, uh, where we just actually have them swallow a capsule um, fully. Uh, we haven't done that direct head-to-head -head comparison, but I would assume that um, once it dissolves out of the capsule and it's into the stomach acid, it's going to get extracted fairly well like it would do in a water environment. Uh, most of the time that people brew teas from the leaf material, they'll also add citric acid or lemon juice or orange juice to the water to make it more acidic and pull more of those compounds out. And so I think in theory, it should be a very similar process to the water extract, uh, okay, but the water extract would concentrate it better. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been an enormous wealth of information and you have uh, hold the keys to really an antidote for a perplexing problem that's killing tens of thousands of Americans every year needlessly. And there's a safe and natural solution. So I really applaud your efforts and your work to Thank you. bring this forth and forward. Thank you. It's a whole bunch of us. It's not just me. Well, you're certainly <laughs> one of the leaders and I pre appreciate well, your you. efforts. Thank you.